Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. After a career in journalism spanning a decade from 1974, Sandy Logan joined the Australian Foreign Service and undertook postings to Papua New Guinea, Bonn and Washington DC. Today I'm talking with Sandy Logan about his book, Betrayed. It's the inside story of the two most unlikely drug-running grannies in Australian history. Sandy Logan, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Oh, it's great to be with you, Greg, and, and with the listeners. Thank you. Vera Todd Hayes, Toddy, and Florice Marie Bessier, or Beezy. When I first heard those names, Toddy and Beezy, I imagined them as characters from a 1920s gang-running moonshine or maybe something out of the Dukes of Hazard. Yeah, or Thelma and Louise. That too. <laughs> That's nothing like the truth, though. How and where did you first encounter the drug grannies, Toddy and Beezy? It's quite an interesting uh, encounter I had, and it was with a, a, a wires machine, a telex machine in my newsroom in Toronto, Canada, uh, on the Sun newspaper. And I was a young police reporter. I was on the late shift that night. It was early February 1978. And it was our job as the, the late starter at four o'clock in the afternoon and finishing at midnight to check the wires just before the last edition was put to bed, so to speak, to make sure the, the Pope was still alive, the president hadn't been shot, we didn't have to recast page one. And I noticed a story coming in about two American women arrested in Sydney, Australia, and I'd spent my teenage years growing up in, in Sydney, so I was, I was associated with Australia, and it detail a camper van in which they'd been traveling, had been found to be carrying a large quantity of drugs, of hashish. And the large quantity was almost two tons of hashish, hardly for personal use. So I ripped that little telex off the machine, put it in my pocket, and I kept it just in case when I returned to Australia, at some point, I had no immediate plans in early 78, I might pursue it. And that's what happened, Greg. I pursued the story just over a year later when I returned to Australia, was working as a journalist, and I thought, you know, I might just, I might just speak to corrective services officials in Sydney and find out if the women would be prepared to speak to me. And I persevered. They, they didn't want to talk to any journalist. You can imagine they got a, a real going over in, in the tabloids and on the evening TV bulletins during their trial in February, March and April of 78. And so they were, they were pretty done with, with journalists. But I was able eventually to convince them. I'm not sure if it was my North American background being Canadian or and or whether it was because I, I played ice hockey and I was an active sportsman and they loved their sports. But in the end, they agreed to see me and I went up and visited them. My intention and, and my motivation was journalistic intrigue. I, I wanted to know the why and the who and how much, those sorts of questions. But when I got to meet them, it, it struck me that this was not just an eight or 10 paragraph yarn. These are two genuine human beings who were really meted out an injustice. They, they were in jail for a long, long time. They had no family in Australia. And it just struck a chord in me. And they, they made it quite clear they weren't seeing me as a journalist to give me a story. And so I, I respected that confidence that they, they gave me. 
And over time, they, they wanted to keep seeing me. They wanted to keep talking to me. And I'd go each weekend up to Tomago, which was the second of the three prisons they served time in, in New South Wales. I'd go and visit them. And we began to, to develop a trust. And I learned over a period of time that really what they wanted was they wanted someone to listen to the unfairness of how they'd been betrayed. Now, if we can go back in time a little bit, what was the family life of Toddy and Beezy like? What kind of people were there? What was their family background? They both came from fairly average, what I would call sliced white bread families. Toddy was born in West Hollywood in, in Los Angeles, and that's where her two brothers and two sisters also were born and where they resided. Um, Toddy worked in the Women's Army Corps uh, during the, the Second World War. But before that, she was a, a quite a, a successful athlete in the, in the mid-30s. She was considered for the U.S. Olympic team in athletics uh, to go to Berlin, but suffered an injury and, and didn't get selected in the team. But nonetheless, she played professional softball in a women's league, which was quite popular. In fact, she played in a team that was sponsored by Bing Crosby, which was not uncommon in those days for movie stars and singers to be sponsoring community teams as part of their part of their profile building. Beezy uh, grew up, was born and grew up in Beloit, Wisconsin, also lived for a period of time in Oklahoma. And her parents divorced when she was young. That was a little bit unusual, but her mother essentially brought her up and she studied to become a dietitian and a masseuse. And it was, in fact, uh, in the, the, the late 40s, early 50s that both women met up uh, working on the assembly line of the Douglas Aircraft Factory in, in Los Angeles, of course, after the Second World War. And uh, Toddy was a, became a supervisor fairly quickly, and Beezy was, was very handy. She was great at riveting. She was like Rosie the Riveter. She was great with, with riveting and quite a handy woman with tools fixing and, and repairing things. Here's a good line. Listen, Adi Vera, I have a wonderful proposition for you. Are you sitting down? What was that proposition and how was it received by Toddy and Beezy? Yes, and, and, and you know, Greg, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is too good. And the offer that Vern Todd, the nephew of Vera Todd, was an all-expenses-paid trip to Europe and then a fully-equipped camper van that he was having custom-made that he wanted them to drive from Stuttgart in Germany through nine countries, all the way down to what was then known as Bombay, today it's Mumbai in India. And Toddy said, this is Vern, my favorite nephew. And, and he says, I'm his favorite auntie. And he could offer this to any of his aunties, but he's offering it to us. And he knows we've never been overseas. Their overseas was looking at the National Geographic, beautiful color picture magazine. And he, he said to them, I'm opening a film documentary production company in Australia. He was known as a successful businessman to the family back in Los Angeles. He'd lived down under since the mid-60s. He made Australia home, married a, married a woman and, and made Australia home. He didn't quite say all that he did, but this was a new business endeavor, the way he explained it. And after mulling it over and giving it some thought, the women thought, why not? It's all expenses paid. And it was also an offer, if it all works out and you make it to, to Bombay, I'll also pay you $25,000. That was another reason why Beezy said, what's the catch? But there was no catch. Uh, nephew Vern was just being generous and, and looking after his, his Auntie Vera. So she thought. 
how did their attitude to the journey change as they crossed or as they made that quite substantial journey? They were initially quite excited. They learned very quickly that not everyone speaks English. So that was a real culture shock for them. They found some of the local customs slightly at odds with what they were used to. They saw the way women were being treated in, in some countries. They, they got through monsoons. They got through bandits holding them up one night. In fact, I won't go into the great detail, but they were very lucky to have got through that encounter with the bandits. They were, they were lucky to, 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 to be alive and, and had a major, major breakdown. Very funny story about how they waved down, flagged down help. It's a great travelogue in some regards. And if you just think about it, this was 1977. Two women, 59 and 61, never traveled abroad before. They had driven camper van because they had their own. But here they were going through countries they, they'd never, ever imagined they'd drive through. And it included driving through Tehran, the capital of Iran, just on the cusp of the Iranian Revolution, when the Shah was about to be overthrown. And as some say, the mad mullahs, Ayatollah Khomeini, was about to come to power. So it was quite a, an amazing journey when you consider the time and the circumstances. Did that journey begin to unravel at some point? Did something raise their suspicions during that period before they flew to Australia? Indeed it did. And there had been a few occasions. Of course, this was a, a time when there were no mobile phones, so they would keep in touch with Vern. Uh, via landline and, and call him to let them know how they how they were traveling. They were going to be doing some some product demonstrations of a new tubby bath product that Vern was promoting. That only happened on one occasion. And at different times, associates of Vern, whom they'd met in Stuttgart, would pop in to meet them where they, wherever they were staying as, as they would phone in. They didn't think much of it. But when they got to Peshawar, in Pakistan Afghanistan territory. Vern arrived, he said, with some new camera equipment and he needed to take the van from them to go and do some filming. And so he took the van from them for a couple of days and they stayed in a, in a government cottage, a Dhaka, and they enjoyed the, the local flavor of the, of the location. They apparently weren't too keen on the, the goat, the barbecued goat, but when Vern returned with the van, they, they carried on driving. The roads were, were far from ideal. It was getting harder and harder for Fatati, who did all the driving. And by the time they got to Bombay, they'd, they'd had it. They were ready. It was the end. Of, that was the, the plan to get to Bombay and to fly home. And Toddy was her sciatic. Uh, nerve pain was bad. Her headaches were bad. She had a cataract that was beginning to play up. And everything that you did not want to happen when you're overseas was now happening. And she was ready to go. But it was at that point that one of the lieutenants to Vern Todd, to nephew Vern, stepped in and essentially threatened them that they had to go on to Australia or else. And he didn't quite explain what the or else was. And, you know, when I spoke to the women in jail on, on numerous occasions about that moment, they, they both agreed that their gut instinct, their gut feeling was, this is really not right. But for Toddy, for her family was so important and, and uppermost in her mind. She could not accept, she didn't believe that her nephew Vern would do anything to harm her or Beezy. And so she, she kind of refused to, to recognize or to acknowledge that what Vern was doing to her 
was was threatening and intimidating and, and holding a customs document over her via a, a lieutenant, as well as threatening her with the unknown, potentially violence. Something happened there between Bombay and Sydney. They flew to Sydney from Bombay and the camper van came across on a ship. The police were tipped off. Who were they tipped off by? Well, the reality is, Greg, that the, the then Federal Bureau of Narcotics had a very strong intelligence analyst uh, working with them, a strong team that was looking at a modus operandi for which Vern was now well known. And they were targeting vehicles that were being shipped to Australia from India, ostensibly with tourists about to drive them on an outback adventure. And there were different, there were three different types of vehicles, two Mercedes, a large camper van and small vans and small Renault panel vans, Renault fours. And Customs and the Federal Bureau of Narcotics was onto them. And they were manually going through shipping manifests that Customs brokers would bring in on a daily basis for the cargo for which they were responsible and would be clearing upon arrival at the docks. And they picked out this camper van. It was, as I call it, the mother load. It was eight meters long, 26 feet, and it just fit the target of a major drug importation. It, it, was, it was too good to be true. And so the Federal Bureau of Narcotics stood up uh, a 12-person team ready for the van known as Operation Genius. And after putting their drill into the floor of the van in six locations while it was on the dock over the weekend after it had been unloaded, and each of those drill bits coming back with hashish, they estimated that they'd hit or they would find between 60 and 80 kilograms of hashish. So you can imagine their surprise when they eventually got the van, arrested the women and what they found. So from, I guess the point that they detected the van was hot, that it was carrying drugs. They put a tracking device on, they ins ins installed a couple of listing devices and the women by that stage, I, I fear or feel, I, I fear that, that they were in quicksand. And even though they had no idea that this is what Vern had put them up for. They were they they had the noose tightening around them everywhere they traveled in Australia, and it was simply a matter of time. So eventually, they ended up in prison, charged with importation of drugs. Where were they sent initially, and how did they deal with prison life? Well, they were sentenced to fourteen years jail, which was quite severe. It was a heavy sentence in those days, and there was no non-parole period on the bottom. There was no minimum period they would have to serve before parole was considered. So their only options were to serve the 14 years if they lived that long. And I don't believe Toddy would have lived 14 years in jail or to escape. Well, that wasn't going to happen. They weren't those sorts of people or a fight for early release on license, which Commonwealth prisoners uh, are entitled to granted by the governor general on the recommendation of the attorney general. And they were serving their time in three, in state prisons, in this case in New South Wales, because that's where they were arrested. They started out in Mullawa. They did about 19 months there. That was tough. Riots, a lot of drug use. They were targeted. Um, as you'll find in the book, there were some nasty, nasty situations at Mullawa. They were transferred because of their good behavior and their cooperation with authorities, including a West German court case 
prosecuting one of the lieutenants, one of the drug ring lieutenants. They were transferred to a minimum security prison up in the Hunter called Tomago. And in fact, the Tomago detention center didn't even lock its front gates. That's how much they trusted the prisoners there. They did almost a year there. That's where I first met them. And then when Tomago closed, they served the remainder, about three years of their sentence, two and a half years of their sentence at the Norma Parker Center in Parramatta. That was another old building that was converted into a minimum security prison, about 45 prisoners there. You got involved in this protracted battle for their freedom. Why did you do that? And what were the obstacles that you were up against? I became involved fighting on their behalf because I felt there had been a real injustice handed to them. They'd been, they'd been set up, duped and betrayed by their own family nephew, by, by Vern Todd. And, and that, that just struck me as being an, an absolute betrayal of the worst order. And these were two very decent, genuine human beings who didn't, didn't deserve to be treated this way. I was attracted to it and, and motivated to get involved because they had no family in Australia, none at all. And in fact, Toddy especially couldn't bear the thought of any family member flying all the way down under to visit them and then leaving them. She just couldn't bear the thought of seeing them and having them there in real life in flesh and blood and leaving them. The only friends they really had were their lawyer and a Christian network from local churches who would visit regularly and would lobby on their behalf as well. And then there was me, the journalist. And Yes, I did report on them for, for, for the media. And some might say, well, that's a bit of an activist. That's not a journalist. But the reality was, if I didn't do it, I couldn't see that there was ever going to be a time that the government of the day, it was a coalition government under Prime Minister Fraser and the Attorney General of the day, Senator Peter Jurak, I couldn't see a time that they were going to do anything other than use the women as a political plaything, as a kind of threat to any other drug importers or people who, who would be duped into becoming drug mules, a threat as an example of this is what would happen. And so I, I got involved and, and I didn't let go. You know, three and a half years of constant visiting, constant handholding, lots of crying, lots of tears, and some really sad occasions, as you'll find in the book, when we thought they were getting out of jail and it didn't happen. Why was this case such a challenge for the Australian government? I think there are probably two or three issues, Greg, here that this goes to the heart of. One is this was the 70s. It was a time of great social change. And you either lead, I think, as a politician, as, as a leader, or you get out of the way and the people will take over and lead. And, and I think there was, that, there was that battle. There was that kind of nexus that, that existed where certainly by the late 70s, the use of cannabis was becoming much more prevalent in the community. Uh, women's rights and, and, and equality was, was a strong theme in, in society. And the government of the day, I don't think, was quite up to managing that. The Vietnam War had ended. Uh, we, we got through that. And for many people, the idea of, of having any semblance of drug reform was a an, an, an total anathema to their policy of no drugs or all drugs are bad drugs. And I don't deny, I don't argue with the, 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 the legal or the law enforcement philosophy that if you're bringing in two tons of drugs that are worth up to $20 million, someone's making a lot of illegal money 
and you don't know what that illegal money is going to then generate. So I well get that. But in terms of law reform around cannabis use, I think Australia was quite behind at that time. And hence, the women were, were, were prime examples for the government of the day to wave in, in, in the world's face and saying, look how tough we can be. And then the other reason here is that they became a political plaything of the coalition government. The number of times that the attorney general hinted at an early release and then pulled the rug out was just was just dreadful. It, it was playing with their lives terribly. And that just riled me uh, even more. And, and if anything, inspired me to recommit to the cause. And what, in the final instance, secured their freedom? What was the one thing that sent them on their way back to America? Well, I don't want to sound political here, but it's a bit like what's just happened the other day. It was the election of a Labour government. So in 1983, Prime Minister Bob Hawke came to power and the shadow attorney general, whom I'd been talking to for the previous year, a very kind, intelligent and compassionate man, Senator Gareth Evans, had moved slightly in his position from initially rejecting any suggestion that the American prisoners should be treated differently just because there had been some lobbying being done by American politicians and came to the conclusion they should be treated no differently to any Australians. And when we were able to demonstrate that the, the judge at sentence had in fact treated them differently to Australians and in a letter to the previous Attorney General, Senator Jurak, had said if they were Australians, I would have given them a four-year non-parole period. Senator Evans's position slightly moved. And so when he came to power and about 10 days after he was sworn in, he recommended their release on license to the Governor General who signed it. And that was a wonderful day, a wonderful day for them. I want to finish with perhaps the mastermind or otherwise of this whole story, Vern Todd or Vern Jr. Where is he now? Vern Todd fled Australia before the women were arrested never to be found again. I don't believe ever to have visited Australia ever again. If he did, he might have used one of his many aliases. This was a time when we didn't have iris scans. We didn't have chips in our passports. We, we hadn't digitized the world. Um, I don't want to give the game away entirely, but he was eventually tracked down overseas. He did live for many more years but he was never held to account for this awful, awful betrayal. Sandy Logan, thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you, Greg. I've been talking to Sandy Logan about his book, Betrayed. It's published by Hachette, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.